think a major factor should be originality. Oh, wouldn't that fall under talent? Mm, always nice when it does. Come on. Hello, and welcome to the final original run episode of The Lodgers, Sword of Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined by Kate Renabom. Hello. Oh, man. I'm pumped. It has been a ride. We're here. It's over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's over, you know, for like two days until we do our Fire Walk With Me podcast. But for now, we have reached this end, this symbolic end of our podcast journey. Yeah, we've we've reached an important milestone. Uh, This this marks the end of the original run of episodes of Twin Peaks on ABC. And uh, yeah, we're obviously we're going to talk about the last two episodes, which is, uh, of course, uh, Miss Twin Peaks, directed by Tim Hunter and written by Barry Pullman. And finally, Beyond Life and Death, written by Mark Frost, Harley Payton and Robert Engels and directed by Lynch. And yeah, there's lots to talk about, um, both in these episodes and uh, elsewhere. By the time you hear this, uh, it's I will assume that most of you will have read the cover story that appeared in Variety this week, as well as photo shoot. And by the way, the photos in that shoot were way cooler than mm-hmm. the ones for EW. Mm-hmm. Um, not anywhere near as many cast members, but the sensibility was much more in line with what I would hope for. And yeah, yeah the story itself is is worth reading. If you, if you want to be totally lily white and avoid all spoilers, I would advise you not to read it because there are a couple of small things. But um, just in terms of like hearing about how it worked between you know how how the whole thing sort of came to pass with the new season and the negotiations with Showtime, which um, I was really interested to hear about because because I you know I'm sure you and I Kate both paid close attention to that in terms of sort of the yes. the gossip that was going around and, and we were we were all thinking ah oh, Showtime seemed like such jerks about this and then reading about it now it's like no nah, this all sounds pretty reasonable actually. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I followed that all pretty closely at the time. It, it, You know, they're all being very polite about it now, so you're not getting, I think you're maybe getting a polished version of sort of what happened. But uh, I also think, like, looking at the history of Lynch's career with sort of financier people, there there may be some lacking communication stuff on his end sometimes <laughs> as well. Um, but it, yeah, no, I mean, for people who don't remember, basically it was that... Uh, Lynch had agreed to direct the new season and they had, they had tentatively discussed something like nine episodes. And apparently, according to Lynch, he had thought that they would be flexible on that and they might be able to go up to 13, uh, and then sort of quickly ran into a wall. Um, because again, interestingly, in relation to what we've talked about before in the past with sort of Lynch in relation to scripts, apparently they wrote like a 400 page sort of, uh, single script Bible thing that hadn't really been broken out into episodes, which is why Lynch wasn't sure how many he would need. Uh, and then eventually it became clear that he would need a lot more than nine. Showtime at first didn't want to give them money, but it sort of sounds like maybe there was just a breakdown in communications and then they figured it out and Showtime came up with money for 18 episodes and here we are. Yay. The most interesting kind of tidbit about that, um, that I wasn't really expecting was, was when the article notes that like for, for a guy with Lynch's sort of reputation of being, you know, of being this very like intuitive, seemingly flighty uh, director or artist, like he actually is quite, um, he has this practical side where he's able to budget things out and not, and like 
do things reasonably and not like go like I I've never heard of a Lynch project going like over budget or like a shoot taking way too long or something like he he doesn't have that rep that a lot of sort of auteurs have of being difficult to work with on any level yeah. um, except except of course occasionally with when when you're negoti- when are you, when you're negotiating with a you know a major TV network <laughs> about you know about like artistic vision that's kind of different but in terms of actual execution like he's very he has this sort of workmanlike quality uh, which you would not expect from you know his end products yeah i mean i think he i think unfortunately there's been some blurring there from his early career with this with this idea that dune was a big flop and that that was somehow kind of lynch's fault or something as if he went over budget or something that that isn't what happened i mean lynch worked with the budget he was given it was a really big budget like he was given a lot of money and at the time he he really hadn't directed anything of that scale so that that was sort of where there was maybe all this you know, people kind of hoping for him to fail, and that that was partially what happened. But yeah, he's he's definitely sort of able to work within the realm of like, you give me the amount of money, and I will make sure it's spent properly. Which, yeah, I think I I'm glad that Showtime came to their senses about that because I I do think that they are probably getting a bargain. Eighteen episodes, eighteen hours of Lynch directed material is, I'm sure they got it at a at a good at a good rate. <laughs> I wonder if Mulholland Drive, the series, would it would have. Uh would have actually been pulled off if there were more baked goods kicking around between both parties. <laughs> I I don't know. You never know. That one that the the origin story there seems more complicated. It seems less likely that uh, uh was that ABC again for Mulholland Drive? I actually can't remember. I want to say that it was, but don't quote me on yeah, that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. It it that I, I again, I it's been a while since I've looked at the writing about that, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I I remember thinking that some of that was that you know, like there's all these these deals where, you know, ABC maybe gets some money from like an international affiliate and then they decide like, oh, they've actually broken even and they really never had any interest in developing it. You know, you know, like that kind of stuff can really be behind those sorts of one off things. So it's hard to say. Anyway. Anyway, uh, you should check out the variety piece if you're not afraid of some very oblique spoilers. Mo Ryan did a great job with it. Um, I'm very ext- I'm extremely jealous of her that she got to talk with with Lynch on uh, at length as I am jealous of everyone who gets to talk to Lynch at length anyway yeah. um, and enough of my personal jealousies and on to uh, those, these last two episodes so unlike with the last few podcasts I think the only way we can really do this is to go pretty strictly in order yeah because um, we're gonna have to save some stuff for the end when we start you know salivating and whatnot <laughs> when um, it just becomes us drooling and like bibbling yeah. our fingers yep that's exactly. good yep. Uh, so let's start with uh, Miss Twin Peaks, directed by Tim Hunter. And my overwhelming feeling about this episode, as much as you know, we've we've talked about Hunter being, um, mm. if not the best non-list director, certainly up there. Um, the the quality of this episode to me is like varies wildly from scene to scene. Agreed. I mean, it's got some like it's some incredible scenes and some incredible individual shots, including. I have to say the shot of Wyndham Earl mm-hmm. in like white face with black teeth for no for no apparent reason is I don't that might actually be the scariest non-lit shot of the entire series. Yes. Yep. It's it, it is really good. And there there's actually kind of a fascinating backstory around how 
Hunter got to that shot? Do you know this? Have you heard this no. story? Okay, so... So apparently, I, I don't entirely understand this because Hunter Hunter had already directed episodes, so I'm not sure how what the timeline of this is. But when he came back to direct this episode, he talked about um, discovering that Frank Byers, who was the director of photography, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and who also worked on things like X-Files and stuff later, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, he, he talked about discovering that Frank Byers uh, had apparently an incredibly strict rule around only doing something like 16 setups a day like lighting and directing and everything for these setups. And so for people who don't know, a setup just means all of the work that goes into staging a scene effectively so it can be shot. Uh, and as Tim Hunter pointed out, like 16 setups a day on a television show is actually not very many. Usually it's sort of more between like 20, 24 kind of thing. And so um, apparently buyers wouldn't budge on this. So Hunter kind of realized he wasn't going to be able to get all the coverage that he maybe would normally be able to shoot. Uh, and apparently, as a form of research for this, started watching minimalist cinema including like films by uh, Ozu and Mitsuguchi uh, and according to Hunter uh, got the idea for the Windemurl white face black teeth from these sort of uh, Ozu Mitsuguchi uh, films Really? Which, yeah. And I, like, I haven't seen a lot of Mitsuguchi. I've seen some Ozu, and I don't entirely understand how you get from Ozu yeah, to no. white face, black teeth. But maybe seen Mitsuguchi. I've a couple of each. <laughs> uh, admittedly, not since film school, but I definitely, like, I would have remembered, you know, watching this very placid Ozu film and then just being scared shitless when the character <laughs> shows up looking like that. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. But yeah, that that shot is pretty great. And like Lynch uses it later and sort of builds it in a little bit. I think you get some. I get, you think you get a repeat sequence of it in Fire Walk with Me. Uh, that's amazing. Um, but anyway, yeah, that is definitely one of one of Hunter's kind of strongest contributions to this episode for sure. Even the whole conceit of Miss Twin Peaks, like there are parts of the pageant that are really great, and then other parts that are just awful, like. And, so, and again, like right ne- one right after the other, like Lucy's dance is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where they pulled that out from, but it was is fantastic. Although it's a little bit weird that Andy's not there to see it. She was a professional dancer. She actually choreographed that dance. She had danced. Yeah, she danced on like cruise ships and stuff all over the place. Lynch and Frost approached her and were like, "We want you to dance. We want you to choreograph it." Anyway, I figured it had to be something like that because it it just it feels right. Uh, but then that's immediately followed by the widow Milford and her, that whatever the, I forget exactly what they call that. Jazz, jazz contortionistic exotica. (laughs) Honestly, the name is the only good thing about it. Yes. She is not a good dancer and I, it's not her fault. This whole thing is so ill begotten from the get go. Like it's, and then they insist on sort of giving like five minutes of screen time to her in this outfit prancing around and endless shots of slack jawed males like drooling over her. And it's just such a dud. Like it just, as I've, outline the reasons for why I hate that storyline in other episodes. I won't go over them again here, but it's this is just an unpleasant reminder of that stuff. Yes. I will say, though, that her husband gets possibly my favorite uh, line reading of the episode when uh, when they're trying to figure out the um, rubric for how everyone should be judged. And Peggy Lipton says, oh, I think originality should be should be factored in. And uh, someone asks, well, shouldn't originality be part of the, the talent portion? And he says, oh my, nice when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that almost makes that character worth it just for that moment. I'm telling you, I've always had a soft spot for uh, for old Milford there. I, I He's he's definitely not on my bad list of characters. I'll, t- I'll take a scene with him any day. 
Um, But I mean, in general, I think the Miss Twin Peaks contest, and and it's my understanding that this episode is pretty divisive among fans, and I think it's totally reasonable as to why. I mean, I actually think the previous episode, the the Gyllenhaal one, uh, Path to the Black Lodge, that ends with that amazing sequence where you get Bob Mm. coming out of the sycamore trees at the end, that is actually much more of a piece with this sort of feeling that we get when we get to the Lynch finale uh, later. And and we actually haven't talked about this yet, um, but there's two quick points about how this, sh- how this episode was actually shown. So it was shown as part of a double episode, uh, Miss Twin Peaks and the finale played back to back on television. Yeah. So even weirder in terms of the like disparate, disparate kind of quality between the two of them. But, um, so there's that. And then also there had been another really long hiatus. So after the past of the black lodge aired, there was another, I'd have to look to do the math, but it was something like three or four weeks, maybe even longer, maybe six weeks until this played. And so it was sort of played as like a one-off TV movie basically to end the series. And even despite that, it's ratings went up. The last two episodes had higher ratings than the previous Mm -hmm. weeks, but uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, it's 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 tough not to feel like if you think about what happens in Path to Black Lodge and what actually happens in this episode, like really, it's it's hard to defend the choice to like expand the events of these two episodes out to two episodes and not just do it in one. Yep, because in between you're getting all this padding with Andrew Packard and and this and the their stupid box and the key and like. Andy continually trying to trying to tell them something, but not being able to, which yeah. is like one of my least favorite comic devices ever. Yes. Um, and like all kinds of other stuff. There's there's definitely quite a bit of padding in both episodes. My least favorite aspect of that is uh, maybe unsurprisingly the plot that they give uh, Lana Milford with her uh, seducing like the judges, like trying to trick the judges so she can win Miss Twin Peaks. And you get a whole scene with her and Dick Tremaine that's just sort of like, ugh, ew, you know, like that kind of stuff. There's some there's some real low points in here. I mean, I would say. Yeah, the opening, se- the early sequence where you get um, the Wyndham Earl in blackface is one of the really only moments we've had thus far where Wyndham Earl's been actually scary. So points to uh, Hunter for that. Um, do we, it- wait, wait, do we call that blackface? <laughs> oh, wait, did I say blackface? You did. Oh, I meant black teeth, uh, white face, black teeth. Oops, sorry. That's not what I meant. Uh, it's it's uh, 8 p.m. on a Tuesday. People are going to, Wednesday? What day of the week is it? This is clearly, I'm losing my mind. But anyway, the, I mean, the other kind of main points I think that we get here, there's the important sort of moment with Coop and Annie where Coop and Annie mm. sleep together, finally. Like, there is a development there. Um, I, I, I would have to say, watching that scene again with maybe slightly more critical eyes, I love all of the stuff where they're talking before they start kissing. Once they start kissing, it maybe feels a little like they're kind of lacking in some <laughs> physical chemistry or something. I, I don't know. How did you feel about that? I don't really know how to judge this kind of thing. I mean, yeah. I will say that it, it's it's so hard to quantify these things. I mean, like, there really aren't that many sequences in Twin Peaks of people actually, like, doing anything, which yeah, is interesting true. because there's a whole lot of, like, smoldering. But I, I, I do I do like that scene overall. In general, I, li- I like her presence in both of these episodes, although yeah. I will say that it doesn't really jibe with her character that she's entering Miss Twin Peaks, like, really at all. Oh, wait, Simon, really? It doesn't jibe with her character, you say? What about <laughs> what about the character of any of these other women who, you know, would never do anything like this? <laughs> I, I mean, like, th- this was sort of what I was leading towards when I said this is divisive among fans. Like, I, I for the life of me, don't understand why... <laughs> This needed to be a plot device. Like I, I just, I, I just think it is so 
ill-conceived on so many levels. And, and I am, again, took serious pleasure out of reading Cheryl and Fenn's account of a lot of this stuff and her being like, this was absolute crap. And this was such a sign of the show just going totally down the drain. They had no idea what, what they were doing. And their response was, let's just get all the women into cute outfits and have them dance around. And they told, they, <laughs> they told Cheryl and Fenn that she was supposed to be part of this, um, chorus line. And she flat out refused. She was like, I will not do that. Absolutely not. And, and I was like, yes. Like, I, Cheryl and Fenn is quickly becoming, like, one of my is, heroes. Is she not in the chorus line? No, she's not. If you watch, she's the only major female character who is not in the chorus line. Wow. Yeah, I did and, not pick up on that. And they actually, they sort of write it in a little bit when you have Ben trying to, like, coerce her into doing this in that episode. And she's saying, no, this is, there has to be another way. And so I think that's supposed to sort of explain her absence from the... Uh, from the chorus line, you do get her giving a bit of a speech later. You see like yes. a short clip of the speech. And I have to admit, I do like Annie, but uh, Sherilyn Fenn in her like few seconds at the microphone absolutely sells her speech more <laughs> than Annie does in, in all of the minutes that Annie is given to, to this speech. And I don't know what that is. I think that's just Sherilyn Fenn's presence or something. Uh, it's yeah. no, nothing against Heather Graham, but yeah. May yeah. Maybe if you'd had like 25 previous episodes to like glom onto Heather Graham, you would have enjoyed it more. Exactly. But, but, but you can't help but, but agree with which, whichever judge exclaims, she's been here for 15 minutes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Anyway, so yeah, so the so the the whole Miss Twin Peaks thing kind of gives me a little bit of the ugh, I'm not yeah, I'm I'm yeah. not that into it, but um, I mean I don't yeah. know. There's kind of a, I mean first of all they they do they make like plot reasons for some of them to be there, like you know Shelley's there to like potentially you know make some money and yeah. all this, which that that's fine, and you know uh, Audrey's there for the for her dad's plot or a plot of niceness or whatever it is supposed to be happening. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much it though. On the other hand, there's kind of like a, I don't know. There's like a meta element that almost works to that where it's like, you know, this bevy of women has always kind of been like a selling point of the show. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. having them all be like explicitly showcased like that kind of makes sense on like, in like a weird way. Not that it's not exploitative, because it definitely is. Yeah. But it's it's almost like it's acknowledging that it's always been kind of exploitative. I don't think they thought about it this much. I'm just, I'm trying to mount a, a meager defense here. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, and again, not not to say, you know, Lynch is some saint and everybody else is bad, but I, I do think that, like... When, when Lynch kind of picks up this stuff, like these questions of men ogling women and, and men and like women having to, to um, use their image a certain way or be subjected to being an image in a certain way, with Lynch, one gets the sense that there is always kind of a weight to that sort of problem. Like it, it, even if you're, even if it's, I don't know, maybe taking place in a jokier context, it's not just for the fun of it. Like it's not something that can just be thrown around with Lynch. It's like, there's, there's usually like a real problem or tension or something there. Um, and I, and I don't feel that here. It's like here you have squiggy or whatever that actor's name is, uh, Pinkle, uh, on the show. Um, you know, like, like looking at women, like staring at women's cleavage and like making them bend over and like, yeah, we're all supposed to get that this is just men being gross, but it, it's just not done with much intelligence. It's not done with much interest for me. Anyway, I, I don't think it's the worst ever until you get to maybe some of the Lana Milford stuff. Um, I just don't think it's that great. And I think it creates a really strong transition from like some of this stuff, these weaker elements of the writing that just is so dramatically different from what we get in the next episode, right? Like it's just, there is such a change here that it really highlights 
some of the things that maybe we can talk about more when we get to the finale in terms of what Lynch does in relation to the script that was given to him. Um, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you, you directed me to the original script for the finale. I, uh, I, I, to, for a peek behind the curtain, folks, I've been apartment hunting, so I've had very little free time to myself. Uh, I didn't have time to go through that, but um, uh, you, you might as well. I mean, hell, we're at the 20-minute mark already. We may as well talk about this. So um, as I understand it, uh, the credited writers assembled a script uh, that Lynch was not altogether um, thrilled about. Yeah. So this is where we maybe should, yeah, this, we can open this up a little bit onto some of the back, back scenes, things that were happening uh, behind, <laughs> behind the scenes at Twin Peaks at this point. Um, so yeah, so Mark Frost and uh, Harley, Harley Payton and Robert Engels wrote a screenplay for the final hour uh, and gave it to Lynch. Um, Frost now narrates this as saying he told Lynch when he gave the, gave him the screenplay, uh, you know, this is just a blueprint, like you do with it what you want. Whether that is actually how it happened at the time or whether this was Lynch, um, openly expressing frustration with how the second season had gone and how the direction that some of the writing had taken when he disregards largely, he, he disregards at least 50% maybe more like 60 or 70 percent of the screenplay that was given to him and sort of direct something entirely differently uh maybe you know whether this was lynch expressing frustration with these developments of the show there's scuttlebutt there and honestly i this had never really occurred to me simon until i really sat down and thought about the way that the show unfolds um but when lynch directs fire walk with me a film that was announced a month after the finale aired uh mark frost is not involved so Lynch goes off and directs, uh, you know, writes Fire Walk With Me with Robert Engels, not Mark Frost, who had been the credited co-creator of Twin Peaks. So the, the general sense here is that there was friction that had developed between the two of them. What role the finale plays in that is, a, is an open question, I think. Hmm. It is uh, interesting it is. that um, in that Variety interview, Lynch expresses something that seems kind of obvious now, but like I, I, I've never heard him say explicitly before, which is that he in re in either in retrospect or at the time he wishes that he'd been able to direct the entire original run. Mm. Um, which yeah, maybe again something you, maybe you could have guessed, but it's interesting to hear him outright say it. And he and he does he does add the caveat like no, not that anyone did a bad job. It's just you know, it was a lot of episodes to do. <laughs> Yeah, and like he says what we've said here, which is just that no one else can really be Lynch. <laughs> so, of course, it's going to be different than what he would have done. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I find, I, like, I've been reading a lot about people talking about this finale because the finale is kind of infamous. Um, I mean, maybe just as a general preview for people who don't remember it very well or something or who didn't have time to review it before this. The finale takes a pretty dramatic departure from uh, from where we have, what the show has been like leading up to this. And, and in a lot of ways, I would say that the finale kind of makes a dramatic departure from everything that has gone on in the show so far. I mean, the finale takes aspects of what happens at the end of the third episode with the Red Room and and goes so much further with it. Mm. Um, and, and like for me, this has always been a really amazing radical example of of someone basically getting to do avant-garde cinema on television for like mass audience I mean, for 10 million people like that's that's a pretty mass audience especially when you include everybody else who saw it afterwards um what i find a little frustrating and kind of upsetting is is how often this finale gets narrated as if it was a 
Uh, I mean, I don't want to swear because it makes more editing work for Simon, but as if it was like an up yours to somebody. I keep hearing it narrated that way, that it was it was Lynch telling Frost and the other writers who'd been in charge of the second season to screw off, or it was Lynch and Frost telling the network to screw off, like as if avant-garde, as if radical like image making can only exist out of a sort of sense of aggression and hostility. Like I find that right, ridiculous. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, I mean, I think that some of the stuff that's going on here is like some of the most creative I don't know, stuff on television. Like, it, it's it's beautiful. It's horrifying. It's everything. It's amazing. I mean, maybe we should talk a bit about, like, the structure of the yeah, episode. Because it's very, much, it's very much a bifurcated episode. The first 20, 25 minutes is very much Lynch, uh, to the extent that he cares to, uh, sort of putting a bow around some plot elements. And I just love how maybe you can read into how much he cares about different aspects of the show by the way he wraps them up. The fact that Eric DeRay's entire contribution to this episode is a like one and a half second insert shot of him still holding onto the string with his mouth. <laughs> after after Bobby says, I'm sure Leo is up in the woods having the time of his life. Cut yeah. to string and mouth. Um, yeah, that, that actually like there, I have a couple of examples of this, but that um, is one of those examples of something where there was a version of it in the script and Lynch just makes it better. Like, it's kind of amazing. In in the original script, you do have a scene where I think it's Hawk and, and somebody else maybe finally get to the cabin and they come in to, like, into the space and Leo, because he's excited that they're there or whatever, like, opens his mouth and, of course, the box of tarantulas falls on him. And it's like, yeah, that's a gag. Lynch's gag is much better. Like, Lynch's gag is so yeah. much sharper than that. Um, that's one. And there's a couple of other ones like that. But realistically, all of those sequences that take place at the beginning, and, and we can, we'll break them down here a bit, but all of these scenes that take place at the beginning that are a little more plot driven, uh, are, are in the original screenplay. So these were scenes that were written by Frost, uh, and the other writers. So Lynch shifts them a little bit and I can, I'll go through them that as we get there. But, um, but most of that stuff was written out. So like these, these cliffhanger endings that are a real marker of this episode, basically every scene that we get in this opening thing ends in some kind of major cliffhanger around people that had all been written in. Yeah. I mean, except for, uh, Except for Peggy and Bobby, who theoretically get to live happily ever after. Peggy and Bobby? Who are Peggy and Bobby? <laughs> whoop, whoop. Let me, whoop, whoop. Except for Shelly and Bobby, who, you know, theoretically. <laughs> Peggy Sorry. and Bobby. Sorry. Never Peggy and Bobby. <clears throat> Wrong waitress. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shelly and Bobby, happily ever after, although not legally married, perhaps. I like that we get that little bow of Major Briggs having like a nice moment with his wife after after the 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 troubles that he's endured. Um, after being injected with haloperidol. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice uh, change. Yeah. The um and I, I have to say that as much as like everything with Josie and everything after that and everything around it has been like useless and, and dumb and a waste of time. I feel like just having those characters be exploded was like really the only the only dignified way to end it. 
Um, all right. Well, for Simon, what Simon is talking about there uh, is is a scene that we actually get. That scene actually happens once the Red Room stuff has started. So that happens in, in like the middle to last third of the episode. But okay. you you get a long you get a scene. Well, maybe let's come back to that. Let's. I'll just run through okay. the scenes that we have at the beginning. So the episode, yeah, I'm not going in strict order here. You've got better notes than I do. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll try to run through it so we can get to the good stuff here. But the the episode opens with a brief sequence with Lucy and Andy, who after last week have now you know decided that that Andy will be the father which is actually quite lovely and it's a very sort of sweet opening to the episode uh you get an extended sequence in the sheriff station where Coop and uh the sheriff and everyone are figuring out the map and they they come to this conclusion they realize where Earl has gone in the woods uh Lynch shoots it from this very high angle in the corner and it and it for me that scene is the only scene in the episode that has a bit of an odd affect to it. it it doesn't it doesn't quite work and it, it for me it just feels like lynch is struggling a little bit with how much uh verbal information just has to come through in that episode in that yeah. sequence it kind of restrains him a little bit but it's still fine uh there's that one then you cut to kind of another amazing sequence which is uh Wyndham Earl and annie in the woods and Wyndham Earl has annie in this truck and uh I'm no- Wyndham Earl. <laughs> <laughs> and again, in, in credit here, there there was about eighteen times more dialogue for Wyndham Earl in the original sequence, and Lynch really cuts it down. Uh, and then he also has that sort of amazing lighting thing where he he, he Wyndham Earl has a flashlight and he lights his own face when he talks and he lights Annie's face when she talks, and it, it creates a very strange um space he's dragging her through the woods heather graham does like a beautiful reading of this psalm that's like a you know a protection against evil Mm -hmm. for me that's maybe annie's best moment in the in the whole series is her reading of that song well it's one of the it's one of the few moments that actually feels like they're building a character and not just you know making making a fantasy for uh for uh, for Cooper and it's important because you know otherwise she would it, she would really just be a damsel in distress but the fact that they really fold her into uh, some of the more unsettling images that come later I think really helps uh, and like really helps in retrospect too um, with mm-hmm. with her scenes and I I think that uh, it it helps her stuff play better on rewatch. Towards the end of it, uh, you know, this is Wyndham Earl brings Annie into this grove of the sycamore trees here and. He says something to her. He says, like, it feels like almost like a benediction or something. He says to her, I tell you they have not died. Their hands clasp yours and mine. And I, I wanted to know, I, like, that felt like it was from something. So I looked this up, and I wanted to read this just because I, I feel like I'm going to end up bad-mouthing the writers of this episode a lot by talking about the original screenplay. So I wanted to have something that, uh, you know, showed that I, I do think there's interesting stuff here. And, like, I think... Th- like this, for example, this this um, quote that Wyndham Earl has there is from a poem from 1919 by a guy named Gordon Joseph, who was um, a military uh, person in the First World War. Uh, and, and like, it's a really beautiful poem, and it speaks really interestingly to this sort of mindset of Wyndham Earl. And the, the poem is, I tell you they have not died, their hands clasp, ears and mine. They are now but glorified. They have become divine. They live, they know, they see, they shout with every breath. All is eternal life, there is no death. And there is no death is the name of the poem. And like, so there, there is some really strong thought here, I think, in the way that the writers are approaching some of these sequences. I just wanted to get that on the record before <laughs> I start badmouthing them. <laughs> By the way, this is not as interesting trivia, but do you know where Wyndham Earl got his name? 
Oh, I did. I read this. It's it's the Wyndham is the back half of somebody's name, uh, like a the actor uh, William Wyndham. Yes, that's what who, it was. Uh, who's who I was not previously familiar with, but among other things, he was the president of the United States in Escape from Planet of the Apes. What? And, yeah, and <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, and uh, two episodes of The Twilight Zone. Oh, and interesting. A bunch of other stuff. Yeah, well, sort of uh, an old old school TV actor. And then Earl is like the first half of somebody else's name or something, right? Like that's how they. Oh, crap. I don't know where that came from. Oh, yeah. I only, had, I only had half the trivia. <laughs> I forget where Earl came from. I'm just going to say it was Steve Earl. <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense, but I'm going to run with it. Do it. Good. Uh, and so then after we have the sequence with uh, Annie and Wyndham Earl in the woods and Wyndham Earl takes Annie into the lodge, which are this is this really beautiful tableau that Lynch makes, which is the sequ- the sycamore trees uh, in a circle and then the red curtains just sort of faintly appear behind them and it's beautiful. Uh, after that, we get the scene with Nadine and Ed and Norma and Mike and Doc Hayward uh, in, you know, yet another one of these um, like domestic spaces that Lynch always manages to make seem like cavernous and uncanny with this hmm. pink carpet that they have. And uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that scene? What I what I find interesting about his like the scenes of exposition that happen in this first episode is he really seems to want to cram as many characters into one space as possible and just like I guess get it over with in the most interesting way possible. <laughs> like at least in terms of staging, like there's another early sequence where I think we get like six or seven characters all piled into the police station, including Renette Pulaski. Yes, yeah, which is great that he who we hadn't her back. seen in like fifteen episodes. And she mm-hmm. obviously looks totally different now. Um, and yeah, there's like six or seven characters in there, like all sort of like one after the other, go, 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 like, let's get to the next thing. But it, it doesn't feel hurried, but it does. It, do, it definitely feels like, you know, there's a deliberate attempt to really like chew through this stuff uh, in a way that wasn't there in like the last few episodes where, you know, we were, we're things were really getting drawn out with, you know, for instance, the pageant. Yes, it is true. Yeah, here it here it's definitely like, oh, we have all these characters. Let's maybe get them on the screen for one episode. Uh, you know, poor Catherine Martell doesn't make the cut. She isn't in this episode. Uh, and I think there's maybe one or two other people who don't make it. But most most people are uh, do do get at least some screen time. Um, but yeah, the sequence with Nadine and Ed, like it's interesting because again, in the original script, most of the sequence is the same, except for the fact that in the end, Nadine's transformation like back to her original self is largely played for almost like comedy or something. It, it, it really does not have on, on the page. And again, of course, the page is different than seeing people act it out. But Lynch, Lynch makes some kind of key changes there that really give it like a level of sort of pain and and real unpleasantness like like yeah. poor, poor Nadine like it's just you, your heart sort of breaks for her and then simultaneously breaks for kind of everybody else in that sequence um except yeah. for Mikey screw that guy <laughs> except for Mikey who cares <laughs> <laughs> he'll be fine not not him so much um but but Wendy Roby totally sells it like her her kind of like confused waking up and her crying it's it's very affecting yeah I mean I don't know if if it all 100% works for me just because like I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still struggle with the Nadine plotline uh, yeah. just in general. But I mean, I think if, if if she sells it as much as humanly possible and everyone else does, too, it's one of this is one of the aspects. Well, no, I'm not going to speculate about this uh, too much yet, but it is one of the aspects that I am, am curious about sort of going forward now that there is a forward. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we can maybe talk about this towards the end, but Olivia, Olivia and I were watching this episode, and, and two minutes into it as we were starting it, I was like, oh, you know, we're watching the finale. And Olivia was like, can you pause it for a sec? And I paused it, and he's like, you realize that this episode will soon no longer be the finale. Like, soon this won't be the end of Twin Peaks. And I was like, oh my god, I can't even handle that. Like, it's so exciting. But I can't think about it at any length because then my brain, like, falls out of my head. I'm so excited, so. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Have to come back to the present. Um, but then, yeah, the next scene is the scene with Donna and everybody. So Donna and Ben Horn and her parents and this whole big plot line that, you know, I think at the time when I watched this when I was young, I, I remember being sort of invested in this. Like, I remember this scene landing very well, the scene where Doc Hayward... Uh, I've, possibly kills Ben. I remember it definitely sort of had an effect on me. But this whole plot line, like thinking about the last few weeks where Donna has been given this thing with the, with Ben yeah. as her father. Exactly. Like we, we haven't even really talked about it at all because it's very difficult to maintain much interest in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the most interesting aspect of any of it is sort of Ben's theoretical moral transformation, yeah. which they don't do that much with. I mean, I think it would have been more interesting if he just like stubbornly insisted on being shirtless all the time, which is <laughs> one of the weirder aspects of like if he'd shown up to the house shirtless for this confrontation, I think that would have made it more interesting um, and somehow like perfectly in character. Poor Donna. Like, I know she really hasn't had anything interesting or useful to do since uh, since what's his name iced himself. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that he's yep. now what's his name is really bad. I'm sorry. What's his name? <laughs> Harold, Harold Smith. Harold. Uh, Harold. Olivia was trying to remember his name the other day too. And he was like, is it Harry? Harry? And I was like, no, (laughs) Harold Smith. Um, Anyway, but yeah, no, Donna, I mean, she gets just, the writing that she does get for this Ben stuff is not fun for her to play. I'm sure it's really, it's just very whiny. It's her sort of reverting back to this like 13 year old Donna where it's a, you didn't, you're not telling me the truth. Like it's really, it's not fun to watch. You're just sort of like, ugh, like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it stands out like in contrast with every, yeah. with all, with everyone else in her peer group, because, um, you know, they all get fun stuff to do. Maybe not all the time, but like at least some of the time. And Donna just hasn't had any fun since poor Harold died. It's true. Um, yeah, so I, you can maybe... Well, I guess we'll talk about this with Firewalk With Me later, but maybe you can understand why Laura Flynn Boyle uh, does not come back for, for Firewalk With Me. Um, and so yeah, you, this, is, this is it for us and Laura Flynn Boyle. It's true. And a few other people, Cheryl and Fenn, did not want to be part of Firewalk With Me. Neither did Richard Bamer. There's a few other people who, who said no. And, and we, well, let's go back and we'll talk about that next week. But um, anyway, so let's see. So we have now, after Ben is presumably killed uh we cut to uh oh wait i actually must have not written this down but i forgot where it is in this order but somewhere in here you have um coop arriving at the black lodge with uh sheriff truman and coop gets into the black lodge and then you cut and you're inside the black lodge and it's amazing yeah so i don't even know how to break this down but i mean one of the things that i had forgotten about having not seen this finale for several years is just like there is um there's a quality to to this not just sequence like set of sequences where like cooper basically the structure of the black lodge is like a hallway that seems that looks like it has infinite folds but cooper only ever ever travels between two of them one at one end of the hallway and the other at the other and 
on each side there's a room of the same size except whenever you enter one end or the other whatever is contained is not necessarily the same as when you left it um you ever read that uh that Borges story the library of babel uh i haven't the concept of that story is that there's this library that contains everything mm-hmm. and it's like but it's not it's not infinite it's just incredibly large so it's like a certain number of floors and it's like a hexagon or something and it's got a certain number of shelves and each volume is the same size like exactly the same size with the exact same number of characters the library contains every possible permutation of that of 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 each of each volume right so it's not infinite it's just shy of infinite mm-hmm. but it, but it does have the sense of symmetry and that's sort of what i what got to me about the black lodge this time is that it's it's at once like seemingly random but also has a sense of order mm-hmm. and symmetry that is that adds something that adds like a really disturbing logic to the illogic yeah. Um, yeah, I actually, I picked up on, on something similar. I had a, a different, maybe, uh, like, extrapolation from it, but I, I picked up on that as well. Like, this ge- geographical kind of layout of the Black Lodge is really fascinating. Um, but maybe before we dig into that, I will do a bit of a breakdown of some of what was in the original script of the Black Lodge. Because in the original script, there is a lot of stuff that writes out these scenes. Like, there is scenes that take place in the Black Lodge. They're maybe not quite as long as what Lynch does, but there are a lot of scenes that take place in the Black Lodge. And people, you can just Google this if anybody's interested, and you can find the script online. It's, it's, it takes, like, ten minutes to read. It's not super intense or anything. Um, and at the end of it, I wager you will be left thinking, as I was... How did they write something this goofy? Like, the stuff in the Black Lodge that is in the original screenplay it is so shockingly bad compared to what Lynch comes up with that you're kind of left wondering, like, did these people ever understand the show at all? Like, it's a little shocking. I mean, it's things like when Cooper gets into this screenplay Black Lodge, he's, like, in a um, the, the waiting room of, like, a motel... And then the guy behind the counter of the motel is his dad. And then when it comes back to Cooper, Cooper's a little boy. And then he's trying to get his dad's attention. And, like, at one point, Harry, waiting outside, inexplicably sees a a woman in chainmail holding a sword through the doorway, who you never see again. And, like, the the, um, eventual build-up with Bob turning up and Wyndham Earl being there... Like, you get the same basic information about uh, Wyndham Earl trying to take Cooper's soul and whatever, and then Bob saying he can't. But it's all done with uh, Bob, like, strapping them to evil dentist chairs to extract their soul from a dentist chair. Like, and you don't have the red room. Like, you, you don't get any of that stuff. And it's it, mystifying. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if there's, like, a sense where... There's other stuff in the show that when, that when writers get it wrong or, like, do annoying stuff with it, it's like you kind of feel like, okay, there is room for, there's yeah. room for getting that stuff wrong and, and that's fine. But when writers mess up like red room imagery, it feels personal. Like it feels yeah. like they, like they're trying to take something from Lynch's subconscious that only really he can tap into or would even like want to, <laughs> to do properly. And like, it's so hard. It's, it's hard to fault people for not getting it right. It's true. Uh, so I mean we can and we we do, <laughs> but, but 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 at the same time it's like I I really feel for them trying to figure out like how exactly how how to like reverse engineer a red room sequence when you're not David Lynch like. Well, this is the thing is I don't even think I, I, 
from what I can tell from the screenplay, they were it wasn't a red room sequence. Like right, it, right. yeah, like it wasn't that they were writing the red room. It was that they were writing the Black Lodge and they hadn't made this connection that Lynch makes, which is that the Black Lodge is the space of, of Cooper's dream, aka the red room. Um yeah, so like it isn't exactly that, but y- you are very right that there is definitely sort of an unfair challenge there of having I, to I, translate this. Yeah, I, I wonder if maybe they did know that the red room and the black lodge were basically the same thing, but they they weren't comfortable with spending a lot of time in the red room because they felt like that was Lynch territory, so they were kind of like working their way around it. Yeah, it's possible, and and again, like Lynch does keep some of the stuff that they wrote, so he just changes a lot of it and adds a lot to it. So, for example, they had written out the stuff with Carolyn and Annie, uh, like as bodies on the floor that are seen. Um, with some of that dialogue where you get Annie, who may or may not be Carolyn, saying, "I saw the face of the man who killed me." Some of that stuff is there, um, but but anyway, so people can cross reference that if they want. But so you know, like there are definitely things that they wrote that Lynch used, and then there are other things that Lynch really just builds entirely from from scratch, and they're amazing. And I feel like just so people can can have a sense of this, uh, I'll try to break down some of the major things that happen in the Red Room. I have a point to make later about about why it is so difficult to talk about sequences like the Red Room, but mm-hmm. we should we should at least give some highlights. So early on, when Cooper arrives in the Red Room and he's in this quote waiting room part of the Red Room, you get an amazing sequence with I think this person's name is Jimmy Scott singing "Sycamore Trees," which was a new Lynch and Battlementi song that they'd written for this episode, uh, and it's. Stunning. Like right from when you get in, it's a mm-hmm. stunning, a stunning sequence with this man singing the song. Um, you, what else do you get in here? Uh, oh God. Well, we haven't even talked about the bank scene yet with Audrey. So we, I guess we should remember to, to discuss yeah, that briefly that. at some point. Um, do you want to talk about that right now? Cause it actually, you, you get the bank scene right after you get the sycamore tree. Scene. Yeah, let's do that. So, yeah. I mean, in a way, the bank scene is the most avant-garde part of this episode. Like, <laughs> I know. Because you're totally prepared for wackiness in the Red Room. Like, you're maybe not this level of it, but, like, you're, you're, you're prepared for weirdness in the Red Room. What you may not be prepared for are, like, these minute-long shots of an old man tottering between, like, the entrance to a bank vault and, like, a place where he gets water and comes back and then goes to greet new people and comes back. It's just, like... It's, it's like, almost, like... God, what's the? It's it's not quite like Bellatar levels of patience that you require for this sequence, but it's not like a hundred million years off from that either. No, it's not. It, especially not. It, it's. I remember. I remember very distinctly the sequence with Audrey in the bank when I watched this finale the first time because, it, like, you know that it's the last episode when has someone yes. watching it. You know that it's the last episode. You've gotten all of these crazy cliffhangers, and then you cut to Coop in the red red room, and you're like, oh my god, like this is insane. And then you get like a seven or eight minute sequence with Audrey in this bank that's almost silent with this guy tottering around forever and you're like dear god lynch like what are you doing like how are we spending time on this time's a ticking man time's a ticking like it is i remember just being my mind was boggled by it now i mean i kind of love this sequence like now i'm I'm very endeared to it this this old man walking around it's, it's of course the same gag that lynch does in the um season two opener with the decrepit waiter taking forever <laughs> to like do anything and you're like ah oh. um which yeah. i actually i actually think is interesting because i know a lot of people have been talking already about whether you know the new twin peaks is going to sort of have age and aging as a theme like i've heard this from a couple of different people and i actually think it's funny like the first series 
already sort of has a lot about age and aging as a theme because it's not just anybody that's taking forever to walk around, right? It's like this, it's a very specific set of aged bodies that take up this kind mm -hmm. of time. It's interesting rewatching that sequence now because it's only just, it's only just recently that I've seen shows be able to take this kind of time to drag out like a gag or, or a, an idea this long. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched Better Call Saul. I have not. Um, but there's a there's just a couple of specific sequences. Um, there's a sequence in I think the second season because the the Saul Goodman character gets involved in elder law, so he spends a lot of time in nursing homes. And there's a sequence where um, his prospective client is coming down from the second floor on a stair chair, and it's probably like a two minute sequence. <laughs> and I, I definitely thought of, thought back to that, and I, I wonder if Gilligan didn't take direct inspiration from this episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, but that took, you know, 20 years to happen. So yeah, it's true. And, uh, you know, Lynch, I'm sure was paving the way for that kind of stuff. I mean, also this, this sequence is important because it, it ends in an explosion of a bank. I mean, you, you, I mean, who cares? Andrew Packer, like, I never <laughs> want to see him again. Who cares? But, uh, you know, Pete and Audrey, I remember again, watching this as an 18 year old and being horrified by audrey being blown up by this band i was like oh you know so okay theoretically i mean clearly you know clearly the other not. two the other two characters are right there audrey yeah well, i mean i guess we'll see uh <laughs> anyway yeah i mean it's definitely it's an incredible sequence uh that's like again you're expecting stuff like you're expecting red romantics you're not necessarily expecting like this long bizarre like almost like guy french comic director i don't like um, uh the dumont no uh, no like 60s 70s oh comic director uh what film uh oh tati yeah. tati yes thank you yeah, I, I also i also don't like tati yes yes <laughs> high five i don't like Jacques tati either but i do find this to be kind of a tati-esque sequence yes uh yeah i could see that um maybe without the annoying didacticism that you get with Teddy. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Take that, Jock. <laughs> Suck! <laughs> uh, like, like five people listening to this podcast know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is it's a fair complaint to make as a film studies teacher. I'm going to be subjected to teaching Jacques Tati's playtime over and over again in the Red Room in hell once I die. So don't worry about it. This is... Except, except it's going to be backwards. <laughs> And you know what, Simon? It won't make a lick of difference if it's won't. the same movie. <laughs> You'll still be bored shitless. <laughs> exactly. It might be more interesting if it's run backwards. Oh, um, God. Anyway, of, the, okay. of the five people who know what we're talking about, one of them is really mad. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh, all right. Speaking of back. the Red Room. So, <laughs> well, after after the bank sequence, you, you then get another actual... You, you get another sequence where it cuts to the diner. You get the two Briggses together. You get... Um, Bobby and Shelley at the counter. And in, and in another example of a really unusual thing, Lynch basically replays almost word for word a scene from the pilot, which is when uh, Heidi, the German waitress, yeah. comes in. Yes. And, 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 and Shelley says, oh, you're late, or you had a hard time, uh, what was it, knock, something about knock worse than the old man, or you had a hard time jumpstarting the old man this morning. And it's all line for line, and Heidi giggles in exactly the same way. And it's, it's very uncanny. Um, and I... And A, just as a side note, the woman who plays Heidi, the German waitress, is on the cast list for the new Twin Peaks episode, which is, Twin That's Pe amazing. Which is mind blowing. 
But anyway, I, I was trying to think about this, and it, it comes back to that point I said I thought in relation to uh, what you were saying, Simon, about the Red Room and this sort of symmetrical kind of mapping of the Red Room space. The way that that struck me this time as I was thinking about it was how how Lynch comes up with a really effective way to map and break down that space so that um, it almost spatializes the fact that their time is non-progressive. Like, like time is obviously happening because things are happening and, and they can be backwards and forwards, but it doesn't, it doesn't ever go anywhere. It doesn't move anywhere. Like this idea that, that, you know, a coop runs to another room and it's exactly the same room that he was in before, or maybe it isn't, but you'll never really know. And, it, and it's just this feeling that no matter how far forward you move, you're not moving anywhere. You're just sort of stuck in this space. And, and I find that a really interesting comparison to what you get in the scene with Heidi coming back into the diner at the end of the ep- at the end of this series. So you know we're, we're flashing back to the pilot. Lynch is replaying the scene that that is right at the beginning of the pilot and. There is a really strange sense in which um, there's a comment here about something like things aren't things don't change or or they they change but but there's still this possibility of becoming stuck in a kind of repetition that is that is uncanny or frightening or you know or maybe something we could say as literal as this idea of of them being stuck in this town and and not mm-hmm. being able to get out of these patterns or something yeah the um the red room sequence it almost feels like Lynch's um bizarre take on like a time travel paradox Mm. where you know you go back in time to change something but by changing it you've made something else worse or like you've you fixed the thing that you went there to fix but then you've created like a new set of problems of course his version of it is very much like this this impressionistic version where instead of like crawling into a time machine and setting the time dial to get to get to the time place like you, you go into here you go into this space where as a dimension time is is jumbled Mm-hmm. Um, where like you know Cooper walks into a room and suddenly he's like been he's been shot or stabbed or something we're not sure what's happened mm-hmm. um, and then we only find out what happened to him later because it hasn't happened to him yet yeah um, <laughs> things like that are just happening all over the place in these sequences it's extremely disorienting in a way that like I haven't seen a lot of other I'm trying to think of like other like like comparable sequences of like interdimensional places or under places. You know, I'm thinking of um, things like Under the Skin, or I guess even more oh. recently, like 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 Get Out. Yeah, going to the, the place under the place or beyond the place, which is very much like in line with what the Red Room is. And to me, there's something uniquely disorienting about the way uh, it plays with 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 concepts of space and time that I can't I can't really think of another movie or show that like can can rival it. Well, and I, yeah, I have a couple more points to maybe try to get at some of these things that, that makes Lynch's abilities with the Red Room specific. But I, I wanted to add to your point about time travel, because this is the famous moment in this Red Room sequence where when uh, Laura shows up, and at this point it's still, quote, good Laura or real Laura, uh, Laura says... Um, I'll see you again in 25 years. And and people have always taken this, or now are, are sort of taking this in relation to the new series, right? Because it's uh, it's actually been 26 years now with the new one starting. But <laughs> exactly, let's pretend it's 25 years. Um, but the interesting thing is, is in terms of these kind of time travel questions, the whole I'll see you again in 25 years thing actually made perfect sense within the show as it existed. Because when Coop has the dream... You know, in episode, uh, God, uh, I don't remember, episode three or four or three. When Coop has the dream in episode three, 
and Laura Palmer tells him is the killer, Coop is supposed to be 25 years older at that point. Like he's dreaming 25 years in the future. This is why he has the old age makeup on. So the, mm. I just find that interesting. Like it's this again, Lynch's very bizarre take on like time travel kind of movement stuff. I would have never made that connection. So thanks for that. Yeah, I'm not sure it's so obvious, but it, it is there in the show. But anyway, so I thought I would just try to like describe a couple more of the amazing aspects of this uh, scene before I try to make some summary points about it because there are just so many amazing aspects um, I mean, in can, here. Can we just have a moment for Cheryl Lee and yeah. her screams? Because yes. like, even though she's never been in a traditional horror film that I know of, uh, like she er- she earns like a place in the pantheon of scream queens just from this episode. Absolutely. I think I read somewhere somebody saying, Cheryl Lee is much more frightening in this red room sequence than Bob. And I kind of agree. Cheryl Lee is, is really, really unsettling. And, um, I, we haven't explained this yet, but it sort of halfway through or like a third of the way through the red room sequence, um, there's, there's a moment where, uh, you know, Coop walks, walks into one of these rooms and he walks into kind of a tight close up. He's right up into the camera. And then you get this amazing downward looking shot of the man from another place. And the camera is way too high up for this to be possible. And it creates a yeah. really strange thing. And, and Michael Anderson, uh, you know, looks up and says, doppelganger. And, like, then, then all of a sudden you start to have these figures come into the red room that are doppelgangers and you can tell them apart because they have, um, they're wearing contact lenses to look a little different. And so Laura morphs into her doppelganger and that's when you get this, like, terrifying Laura, like, screaming and crawling over furniture and running up to the camera and it's so unsettling. I like that we can't even, like, we're getting into the spirit of the sequence by describing it all out of order. Yeah, exactly. I, there's no point in trying to describe it yeah, uh, no. in order. It's just... Yeah, and then this happens, and then this happens. Exactly. <laughs> well, and in fact, you, you've just given me the perfect intro to at least one of the points I wanted to make about this. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this point about the Red Room. Um, I've actually had this on my list of like points to get on the podcast since maybe, I think, the third episode when we talked about the Red Room, and I kept, we kept running out of time. So I've, I'm glad, because I actually think it makes the most sense for this final Black Lodge sequence. Um, and so let me see if I can, I can try to find a way into explaining this. So I don't know, Simon, have you ever heard that quotation? Uh, all art is constantly aspiring to the condition of music. Have you ever heard this? Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, it's pretty familiar. Like art aspires to the condition of music. And I had always, always heard that for years. And like some people use it in relation to, like I had heard it explained in relation to melodrama because mellows means music and drama. That, that isn't really though what the quotation sort of actually means. Um, and when you find, when you hear it explained, it's such a perfect descriptor for, for what makes Lynch a really special director. So when this person, uh, who, who, this was, this quotation comes from a, like an essayist who was writing in the late 1800s, I think, about art. Uh, and what he's trying to say when he says all art aspires to the condition of music is art good, you know, art wants to be, uh, something that you can only experience in a certain way. And I am just realizing I need to break this down. So there, there are two ways that you can experience, you know, like anything like general experience. Let's say there's two categories. One is 
the kind of experience where you just have to go through it. You have to live it. You have to be in the moment. It's like an existential experiential kind of thing. That's the way you get at that experience. The other kind is the kind where you can sort of stand outside of it, extrapolate things out of it and kind of abstract it and come up with like a structure and say, right. uh, you know, summarize it or whatever. You can read um, the Wikipedia entry. Exactly. That kind of, that kind of approach to something. So this quotation is saying all art is aspiring to get to the condition of music because music is the type of art where you have to go through it and experience it in order to get at it. It effectively can't be summarized. There isn't a message in, I mean, and of course, sure, you could say pop music, that's a different thing, but I'm talking about like melodic music or noise music or whatever. You have to experience it to get it. Like the subject matter and the form are one and the same. You can't separate them out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lynch, like at his best, absolutely proves this as as a real thing and something that like is special i mean I, you don't need to make claims about what is and isn't art or whatever but there is something so fabulous to the fact that lynch manages regularly to create these sequences that absolutely defy our our you know ever present tendency to t- to try to summarize and put it into a category and put it into a structure um you really cannot you can't experience you can't know things about the red room sequence until you watch the red room sequence that's Mm -hmm. just the way it is right and this is one of the reasons that i'm fascinated to have twin peaks come back because i i I don't know if you do this kate but have you ever watched a show for a while and then for one reason or another you fall behind and so you think i'll catch up with this later or like maybe i'll maybe i'll like pick up with new episodes and and like i'll just read like recaps for stuff that I didn't see and I'll be fine. Like it, it, it's not an essential thing that I actually see. Cause I know it's just going to deliver these plot elements in like a strictly functional way. And like, that's perfectly fine. Like it's a perfectly fine way to make, to, to produce entertainment, but it's not like, it was one of the, one of the reasons I'm so fascinated to have twin peaks, like reenter TV in this very different era of, uh, of TV writing is to and and watch people grapple with that because it's it's clearly not like whatever it is it's not going to be the sort of thing that you can you know read recaps of to get the gist of like it's it's just not it's not meant for that mode of production or, or consumption. Yes, exactly, and I, and I do think there's some interesting connections there as well with the fact that Lynch is um, both a musician. I mean, Lynch has sort of constantly written music like with Battlementi, but also with other people that Lynch is a musician, but also a painter. Um, and, and we actually haven't talked about this so much on the podcast, but, uh, one of the kind of famous, you know, if you want to call it origin, origin stories or something of, um, Lynch is the fact that, uh, the thing that made him want to be a, a a filmmaker was he sort of talks about this moment where he was working on a painting and like a wind blew across it or something and, and rustled something on the painting or something. And, and his response was, what if I could make a painting that moved? And this, this was the thing that eventually led him to film. He began working more in kind of multimedia stuff and then eventually sort of animation and film. Um, and I, and that's kind of an amazing uh, differentiation, I think, for him from other filmmakers, because uh, actually Dennis points this out in his book at some point, and this sort of blew my mind, which is that Lynch's Hollywood contemporaries are people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Like Lin- Lynch came of age as a filmmaker at exactly the same time that they did. And like, that's mind boggling, like the complete polar opposition mm-hmm. <laughs> that these people bring to what they're doing is, is crazy. And I, and I do think a lot of that speaks to the fact that Lynch is far more interested in questions of, of form, movement, sensation, affect than he, than he is in, in, 
in narrative. I mean, I don't want to say he has no interest in narrative because he does, but but it's sort of almost secondary or something. Yeah. I mean, I think the most interesting guy to consider in terms of someone who came around at, or at, at the same time and is still making movies is probably Malick. Yeah, there, yeah, there's some inter- there's some connection there. That yeah, makes sense. In terms of like moving to digital and uh, you know, tenuous connection to narrative and the way that maybe doesn't make everyone very happy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's true. They actually they share a connection through Jack Fisk as well. Jack Fisk. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, worked on Eraserhead and then uh, was production designer maybe for Malik. I'm gonna forget. Anyway, uh, we're now we're getting into the nerd stuff, so we should yes. we should come back, but. Um, one thing I wanted to add in relation to this paintings, uh, this idea of Lynch starting from paintings, because I, I don't think I've ever noticed it until I watched the Red Room sequence this time, but man, oh man, there's some amazing stuff that Lynch is doing with um, multi-directional strobe lights yes. in yeah, that sequence. Yeah, the way the lamps yeah. seem to move. Exactly. So so for people who don't know this, it's like if you have alternating strobes from different uh, positions in the room, what ends up happening in the in the image that's captured is a it makes everything look very flat, like very two dimensional, like completely blanks out like the, the depth of the space. And then what happens is that it, it almost creates this effect where because it's lighting different aspects of people's faces on like a rotating thing quickly, it almost looks like it creates like an effect of stop motion animation where different parts of their their head and their body are being outlined, but it almost as if like the animation cells don't quite line up. Like it looks like they're slightly moving out of phase next to each other or something with each cut. And it is such an uncanny effect. And like, I think it walks a really interesting line between it almost looking like a painting, but then still having this crazy element of movement and, and uh, like vital experience. Anyway, it's nuts. Yeah. Um, and the, and obviously the, 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 the floor patterning, uh, doesn't yeah. help you gain a sense of, it doesn't help you get your bearings either. Yes, the, uh, exactly. Something, I mean, I mean, I don't know. One of the things that I find interesting on like a writing level watching the last 20 minutes of this episode is the way that Lynch moves between, you know, things you can grok and things that you can't like the, this notion of, of Bob is there as sort of this, um, as sort of this mediating force and, you know, Wyndham wants, uh, wants Cooper sold, but he can't have it and ends up paying this price. It's all very, um, it's all very Greek. Um, and, um, and that part is, is fairly linear. And when he actually leaves the red room and is like evil Cooper, which, you know, obviously we're going to get there and talk about it. That's something that is clear and understandable. Um, but, and the, the way that he sort of oscillates between, you know, things that are totally almost sort of free associative, Versus things that are um, that are relatively linear, uh, like he gives you just enough to, to take hold of. But but I feel like in this episode, more than any other, there's just these long stretches of like of throwing your hands up and just and just surrendering to the experience. Yeah, and it is uh, quite the experience. I mean, I like I just even re- I was rewatching aspects of it again today, uh, just to remind myself of some of it because again, it's very difficult to talk about prior to this podcast. And there's a couple of scenes here. I mean, again, you could list so many aspects of the Red Room that are really terrifying, but for me, there are two sort of bits that just get me every time. Um, the first one is like when, when Cooper has had these sequences with Carolyn and Annie and he sort of, uh, runs away. Oh, it's after the stabbing. So it's after, um, you know, Earl has, ta- has, has had his soul taken away with this amazing fire effect where Bob like mm-hmm. makes fire come out of his head. After that, Coop sort of turns around and, and kind of runs away and you, you get a shot of Coop 
running out and he runs behind the camera and he's running across towards the left of the screen. And then you get the reverse shot of Bob looking at him and on the back, on the now right corner of the screen, a body starts running in the opposite direction behind the curtain and it's, you realize it's Cooper and he comes out uh, on the other corner and he's all run like he's caught up in the, the um, curtains. And as he comes closer, you realize it's doppelganger Cooper and he has mm-hmm. the, the, the contacts and he gets up close to Bob and they start laughing and it's, it's already so, it's so upsetting. Like the, this idea of doppelganger Cooper is so terrifying. And then the next sequence just makes it, it more insane because Coop gets out into the hallway and finds Ray Wise there. Leland is there in like, again, a perfect, perfect entry from Ray Wise. Um, who is so sort of like just happy and creepy and just there and very unsettling. Um, and, and Coop leaves him and then looks back down the hallway at one point and it's Ray Wise standing and looking at him and then perfectly mirrored 10 feet behind him is evil Coop looking out from behind the yeah. curtain. And it, it just scares the goddamn crap out of me <laughs> every time. And then Coop walks up the hallway and uh, smiles at Ray Wise. They kind of g- green, grin at each other. And as Coop walks up to kind of come into the, the closest entry through the curtain, he stops and looks at the camera and, and like smiles at you in the audience before he walks <laughs> through. And oh my God, Simon, it's like there is, I, I don't, have you ever heard this term? Um, hey, hey, I don't even know how to say it. It's like heyotoscopy. Hey, heyotoscopy. Have you ever heard of this? No, I've not heard of heyotoscopy, Kate. It's it's um it it is a psychological term for the experience of seeing of like a hallucination of seeing yourself outside of yourself, like perceiving your body as separate from what you're currently seeing from. Okay. And there is something just so amazing about what Lynch is able to get at here. This like. This primal fear. I can't even imagine anything more horrifying than, and like an embodied version of my every most terrifying thing about myself chasing me through a never ending set of rooms that I can't get out of. Like, that is just horrifying on like a pure <laughs> level. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I, if I have the same like level of primal terror associated with this sequence as you do. Although no. it seems like, it seems like you've got a direct line to whatever it is Lynch was after. Well, that's good, I guess. Um, you, Is you it? Don't find, yeah, maybe not. Maybe I'll be like a, a totally like yeah. twitching uh, corpse or something by the end of the new Twin Peaks, if that's the case. Um, <laughs> but did uh, was I going to say? So you don't find you don't find like the doppelganger Cooper terrifying? Oh, I mean, it's definitely creepy. But I mean, nothing nothing gets to me as much as Cheryl Lee and her and her uh. primal scream therapy. Or I, it's with her screams, it's kind of hard to tell if some of it's been. Um, manipulated towards yeah, the end there true. like if it's if it's been a little pitched up or something because it's intense I, I have I'm like how would you do that um but yeah I mean I think ba- like basically the last thing I wanted to say about the Red Room stuff was maybe just to tie back into our podcast that we uh did about the uh the original uh entry into the Red Room when Justine was on and we were talking about this sort of like theater of the absurd and and you know, like Lynch using sound and light and color and like strange experiences to sort of just create this like shared emotional space that's like assaultive and, um, but also, uh, like cathartic in a certain kind of way, all of these things. Um, I think that's, that all is absolutely again happening here, but there's something really particularly interesting happening in this version of the Red Room, which is the way in which I think something like ecstasy is, is a useful framework for what's going on here. 
particularly like not in the sense of ecstatic that you're really, really happy about something, but ecstasy in, in its like more traditional, like um, historical usage, which means literally a loss of self. Like the mm -hmm. idea it's associated with these sort of like religious kind of extreme mystical experiences uh, where yourself disappears and it, and it almost crosses over here into a sense of like yourself being stolen, like the self being carried away or raptured off. And it, and I find that to be just such a rich set of things that, that he, he does like visually and spatially and sonically in the, in here, not literally just the plot, right? Like not just the idea that Coop loses his soul, but it's, it's something that like everyone in the audience is almost also feeling like the pull of or something. Yeah. I mean, what I find interesting about this sequence compared to, I guess, past instances of the, of the Red Room is, it's all there. There's now we're getting the difference between having a, a dream vision of the Red Room, like having a, um, sort of a, a distanced visit mm -hmm. versus actually being there, and you wouldn't think there's a difference based on the sort of space that it is, but it turns out that being there really sucks. It just <laughs> it sucks so much. Uh, you know, it's it's disorienting and it's scary. And even the people who were trying to help you before, like the giant, they yeah. can't really do anything now. Uh, they're they're just all they can do is watch and talk backwards and generally not be very helpful. You can't um, you can't even get a damn cup of coffee, Simon. That's it's right. all just crazy. Yeah, the only time <laughs> when it seems coffee like you don't, it's not it's it's not at mouth level. Um, <laughs> it's, it's 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 generally not going well. Quick side note, uh, since since we're going out of order anyway, something that really bothers me about like a couple episodes ago that I that I didn't get to mention is the fact that the giant shows up to Cooper explicitly to say, "Hey, don't enter Annie into the goddamn contest," and then she enters anyway. <laughs> You're right. And more than that, Coop actually talks her into it. Coop is like, it's a wide world out there, Annie. You got to get into a bathing suit and show your ass off to strangers. Like, <laughs> you know, it just, it, this is what I'm talking about where it makes no sense that like you have scene after scene of men telling these women, like, like maybe with Bobby, sure, money, beautiful people, like maybe that one works. But like with Coop telling Annie, oh yeah, in order to experience the world, you have to be in a uh, beauty pageant. It just will never ever work for me. That's yeah, nonsense. sorry, I I know that wasn't on on theme just now, but if I if I didn't get it out, it was gonna bother me. No, you're um, totally right. I'd forgotten that the giant even warns him <laughs> off of it. You're like, what, Cooper? Come on! It's almost like the giant shows up to say, "No, Cooper, don't do this subplot. <laughs> just walk away. Just go straight. Do not stop at the pageant. Go directly to the red room. Come see I bet me." So. I bet Kyle McLaughlin would have been like, was like all totally happy to uh, to have listened to that advice by the time they were getting into the dregs of season two. There, we should be wrapping up because we've gone massively over time, as yes, is our prerogative. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, anything, any last things you wanted to mention before we before we do that? I I remember it taking me almost a week at least to recover from the ending of this finale from Coop being made evil Coop, um, and I, like I think I read something recently where people were somebody was talking about this and they were just like oh yeah all these cliffhangers in season two like just designed to get the show to come back whatever whatever and i i remember being quite annoyed by this because i i don't it's not the same thing to put coop becoming evil bob in the same realm as like ben horn getting hit in the head like they're not the same thing <laughs> coop, coop becoming evil bob is like your entire worldview is like lit on fire and thrown out of a moving train car like it it really upset me when i was young i remember being just devastated 
devastated by it. Like it is, and and I guess I don't. We don't want maybe want to talk about this now. Maybe we can talk about it next week or something. But this question of of the fact that this finale ending is just so brutal that you know whether this sort of contributed to like the cult um, life of this show, like the fact that it is so radically unsatisfying at the end that you're driven to the back to the beginning. You just need to keep like com- like compulsively rewatching mm-hmm. it because the ending is so hard to take. Right. In a way, having the having that repeat sequence from the pilot is almost like saying, you know, you're going back. <laughs> <laughs> you're never going to escape. You're stuck in the red room of Lynch's mind. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. So uh, I couldn't have said it any better. Next week, we are talking Firewalk with me. It's going to be probably really long. So you should be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then... Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna say this now because we're I, I feel like you need some lead time for this. Uh, I have no idea what's gonna happen to this podcast in terms of scheduling, <laughs> I structure. Um, I don't know how many episodes we're gonna talk about in the first episode of the new ones. I don't know, man. I just have no idea. I don't know how many times I'm gonna need to watch it before exactly. talking about it. I don't know. I don't even know if I'm gonna want to talk about it. Maybe we'll just decide the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> after the firewalk with the episode you're just never going to hear from me uh, after again. the firewalk with the episode we'll <laughs> we'll finish the episodes in 25 years oh my god that would be kind of be, is god that is crazy because that would be the time relationship to the old episodes that we're doing now exactly i, I think we might need 25 years to digest properly <laughs> these new lynch episodes simon let's make a date 25 years from now let's do a, a repeat podcast let's if, do uh, it 2042 baby exploded oh my god <laughs> Jeez. I'm calling it now. One of us is dead by then. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's just cross our fingers and, and hope for the best. Oh man! All right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, do rate or review the uh, or review the podcast. Uh, we would really appreciate it. I didn't know this when we recorded last week, but uh, Kate just had a birthday. So, if you would like to help her belatedly celebrate said birthday by rating or reviewing the show. I know she would very much appreciate it. And uh, and pumping up my perpetually deflated graduate student ego. It's That's always, right. always yeah. appreciated. Absolutely. All right. And I hope you'll join us next week for what's sure to be a, uh, a really deep dive on Firewalk with me. And of course, new episodes after that. Peace out. Bye. <laughs>